Well, it was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom. It was the age of foolishness. It was the epoch of belief. Now, many of you will recognize that as the opening lines from A Tale of Two Cities. I don't know about you. When I read those words, I had to keep reading. I had to keep turning the pages and find out about, find out about this age. What a great way to start a book. You don't know about me without you have read a book by the name of The Adventures of Tom Sawyer, but that ain't no matter. Again, I don't know about you, but when I read that, I just had to meet this arrogant kid who says, you got to know about me. And I love the story of Tom Sawyer. These are great opening lines. These are great ways to start stories. But you know, when we get to the begats and the begots, as we like to say in the Bible, a lot of us just kind of read past them very quickly or snooze out or say, okay, when's the pastor going to get to the real action? But the beginning of our New Testament, the first chapter of the first book that reveals the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, His birth, His perfect life, His sacrifice for our sins, His resurrection from the dead, and His ascension to the Father. All that begins with the first book of the New Testament, which is Matthew. And how does He begin? Well, though we don't, in our version, we don't have begats and begots. That's where He begins, with the genealogy. There was a missionary whose name I've forgotten who when he was trying to bring the gospel to certain tribes he would tell them things about how David slew Goliath and they'd say uh-huh okay or how God sent an angel and 175,000 Assyrians died well, that sounds pretty good but this these people when they heard Abraham begot Isaac and Isaac begot Jacob. All of a sudden they perked right up. He was talking their language because that history is so important. And to us as Christians, it is an important history. It's not just a bunch of he gave birth to and he gave birth to and he gave birth to. It's a testament of God's faithfulness. It's a monument to our faithful God who gave his word ages and ages and ages ago and kept it in complete detail. And here specifically, in the coming and the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ, that God became man, that God became flesh in the Lord Jesus Christ. And before Matthew comes to any birth narrative, this is what he gives us, this genealogy. And so this afternoon, those first 17 verses of the first book and the first chapter of that first book of our New Testament are our text. I'll read verses 1 through 17 in Matthew chapter 1. So if you please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nishan, and Nishan the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, 
and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abudab, Abiud, excuse me, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Matan, and Matan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who was called the Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. God bless the reading and be his will. Now the proclamation of his word. Please be seated. So there we have it. This monument to the faithfulness of God. And in the old King James Version, the begats and the begots that we just went through. And we should, as it were, tremble with some excitement here. Because what this says is that God keeps his word. That God is true and faithful in every way. It is impossible for God to lie. And so when he gave his word ages and ages before Jesus was born and kept it in detail, that's how Matthew begins the gospel. This is the first place in our New Testament. And so it should make us like those tribes when I was speaking of that the missionary went to, sort of tremble with excitement. Not just Abraham had a son. God is true to his word. That God's salvation is sure and secure and final and is fastened to you if you have faith in Jesus Christ. And how do we know that this faith leads to a sure and certain salvation? Why is our hope so secure? One reason could be this genealogy, which shows that God keeps his word. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Was not Isaac the son of promise? Read Galatians 3 and 4, and that whole allegory between Sarah and Hagar and Isaac being the son of promise, and the other son, Ishmael, not the son of promise, the son of the flesh. God kept his word. Where these cup, this couple, about a century old, close, actually had a child. Raised up David, the king who was promised. That king who was that first antitype of Christ. The one from whom Christ took his favorite name, son of David. That not only did he raise up David according to his word that he would do so, but to promise to David an eternal throne. And we have the names. Some of those kings weren't so good. Like Manasseh, under whose rule the streets of Jerusalem are said to have flowed with the blood of the innocent people whom he judged and murdered. And yet his name as a king who came in the line of David is there because what? Because God is faithful. And God's word is bigger than our sin. God's word is bigger than our unfaithfulness and our inconsistencies and our stumblings and our failings and our fumbles. God is bigger than all that. And we have that testified here in this genealogy. And that finally, we have the deportation to Babylon. And why is that a testament to God's word? Because God had warned and warned Judah about their sin. And he gave his word that if you don't repent and turn back to me and turn away from these gods, I will judge you by a hasty and violent nation, which he did in 586 B.C. And then God kept 
his word through Jeremiah the prophet. Didn't Daniel say that he was studying Jeremiah the prophet? Daniel being a prophet who was in exile and serving the Babylonians, and he understood it would be 70 years as Jeremiah before him had told and promised by the word of God. Matthew has it here for us after the deportation. When God raised up that King Cyrus, if you remember, we've been going through some of the songs of ascents, and I remind almost every time that they are going back to Jerusalem because what? God is faithful. And he moved King Cyrus to, re to release the people and send them back. We have that here in this genealogy. God is faithful. These 17 verses make the case that the entire world was determined by God for this one purpose, to point to Jesus Christ, the author and finisher of our faith, as it says in the book of Hebrews. Jesus, in his incarnation, he finalizes the covenants, the word of God that we have here. He finalizes the Abrahamic covenant on the one side, and after that, the Davidic covenant, the promise to David that he would have a son on his throne forever, and that's Jesus Christ. This is the testament we have to the faithfulness of God. The genealogy ends with what I said. Jesus was born, who was called the Christ. Done. Now to those natives that I was talking about who heard that missionary, to them that was extremely exciting. That this genealogy, which got them to almost stand up out of their seats as they were listening, because it was so amazing to them, it just ends. Jesus was born who is called Christ. And he waits until the next chapter to tell us the manner of his birth and how that all came about. But what does this mean to us today? We who believe that in Jesus Christ, God became man and dwelt among us, finally becoming our atoning sacrifice for sin. What does this mean to us today, this afternoon, here in this place? It means that through Jesus, the universal blessings to Abraham are accomplished and fulfilled. It means that through Jesus, the eternal throne promised to David is accomplished and fulfilled. That it ends with something so simple as Jesus was born, who was called the Christ, is the goal of this whole opening. And if we're a little more rambunctious here, we might just want to jump up and say, hallelujah, all those centuries of history and God keeping his word after keeping his word after keeping his word time and again resulting in this, which is what that word was all about. That Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. This opening of the book that opens our entire New Testament is a testament to just this, that God is faithful to his word, that we can trust him, that we can rely upon him, that his promises to you in Jesus Christ are all yes and amen. That your eternal destiny, if your faith is in him, is secure first Abraham. He begins with those first 14 names with Abraham. Prior to his calling in Genesis 12, who was Abraham? He was an idolater in the land of Uz. He was there in Mesopotamia with his fathers worshiping idols. Genesis 12, we come to this end of this cycle, sort of, where man was in this constant cycle of sin and rebellion against God. God had created everything, and at the end, he said it was very good. And man soon fell into sin. We know that Adam sinned against God with the tree, and soon Cain murdered Abel. Soon after that, Lamech boasted against God. And we find just a little bit later in the Genesis narrative that man's thoughts were continu continually on evil. Evil all the time. So God became sorry that he even made man, and he sent the flood. 
Well, after the flood, there was a fresh start that was soon sullied by Ham's disgraceful behavior towards his father and so on. But the point is that this is the world into which we have Abraham coming or the world he came from. In Genesis 12, having been born and raised in that kind of a world, he's called to leave Mesopotamia and leave his land and his family and go to this place that God said, I will show you. Where is it, God? I will show you. Where do I go? North, south, east, and west. I'll take care of it. I will show you. And by faith, Abraham left his land and went because what? God is faithful. God is true. He trusted him. He's called to renounce his idols in favor of Yahweh and the land of his fathers for the land of promise, not knowing where that land was even going to be. And he promised him that a great nation would come through him and that through all the fam- him, through him, all the families of the earth would, would be blessed. And we know from Galatians chapter 3 and verse 16 that this promise was meant to come through a single seed or descendant. Now, to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He does not say unto seeds as to many, but as one, and to your seed, who is Christ. That's how Abraham understood it, did he not? That a single descendant from his own body would continue this promise of nationhood and blessing to all. He understood that it would be a single man to carry on this promise. In Genesis 15, he said, why not Eleazar? My chief servant, he was born in my house, close enough. Here's one who could be that seed. No, he's not the one. In Genesis 17, he offers up Ishmael. Oh, that Ishmael would walk before you. No, it's not Ishmael. Why? Anybody could have an Eleazar as a servant. Most of us have had kids like Ishmael. Just regular old stuff. But God had told Abraham and Sarah, that from your own body, you guys are too old for this, right? You're way past this age. From your own body, Sarah, you'll have a child. You're going to nurse a baby, which made her laugh. And it might make us laugh. And we're not going to go into that laughter this afternoon. The point here is simply according, in, in, consistent with this genealogy from Matthew. God is true to his word. That Abraham was the father of Isaac. You can stop right there. Go back to Genesis 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17. You read them about 30 minutes maybe. And you'll see how true and faithful God is to that incredible word. So Abraham begot Isaac, and Isaac begot Jacob, and Jacob begot 12 sons who eventually became the 12 tribes that became the nation of Israel, and certainly that great nation, though there's more to come, we know from the New Testament, but then and there, that great nation was accomplished by God's faithfulness. Abraham, the father of Israel, the whole nation, says we are children of Abraham. In John chapter 8, verses 39-58, that's a whole discussion Jesus has with the Jews who say, but we are children of Abraham. And Jesus says, I know you're children of Abraham, but you don't follow Abraham because you don't have his faith. You don't have his certainty in the truth and reliability of God. What they missed was that Abraham's promise was what? It was actually the gospel itself. We learn that from the Apostle Paul in Galatians 3. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, In you all the nations shall be blessed. 
The author of Hebrews says that Abraham looked forward to what? A heavenly city, a city with foundation whose builder and maker is God. So when we say Abraham was the father of Isaac and we stop there, know this, dear ones. What this tells us in incredible ways is that God is true to his word. As big as that word is, God's arm is not shortened. And his promises to Abraham were fulfilled in time and space, in history. As were and are and shall be his promises to you who are in Christ Jesus. Well, after Abraham, who do we have? We have David. David is Israel's most storied warrior. He is the model of all the kings. He is Israel's poet. Now, the kings of Judah were to bring God's rule to earth. The law of Moses written long before Israel even had a king, anticipated this. And it shall be when the king sits on the throne of his kingdom that he shall write for himself a copy of this law in a book from the one before the priests, the Levites. You see, the law he was to administer was God's, not his own. He had no continental congress to determine the law of the land, no supreme court that could overrule his decisions. It was all from God. And for a while, David did this remarkably well. Because we know famously with Bathsheba and all the rest, he fell into sin. He lost his moral compass. He might have even lost his real moral authority in the land. And the kings who followed after David, this mixed bag. You have a Hezekiah, the greatest king since, before, since David. They said he had a Passover like none other. He cleansed the temple. He restored the priesthood. Hezekiah, this great one who prayed, and 175,000 enemies outside the gate of Jerusalem were destroyed in a night. That Hezekiah, what a great one to have in your line, right? Who came after? The one I mentioned before, Manasseh, the worst of the kings of Judah. Because God's word depends upon not us, not you or me. God's word is not true because you believe it. God's word is true because he said it. God's faithfulness is seen right here in this genealogy with his mixed bags of kings who kept on the line of David through whom all of these God fulfilled his word and kept that line going or pushing forward to what? To, the, to Christ who was called Jesus as we know at the end. So Abraham, the promise of all families on the earth being blessed through him, accomplished in the Lord Jesus Christ, Somewhat in David's day with the birth of Jacob and then the 12 sons of Jacob, he saw his grandsons and that became the tribe of Israel. There's your nation. And yet from Galatians chapter 3, read through that. Where's the ultimate nation birthed by Abraham? It's me. It's you. It's everyone who is of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ following the faithful ways of Abraham. And then David. God's rule on earth by the Judaic kings. David, the one who I would argue best exemplified that, but only for a time. God's rule on earth. And that brings us to the third name. Because for a while, while David was doing well, there were trials that kept coming. And David's, after David's son, Solomon, his son Rehoboam was the one who was there when the kingdom split between north and south, with ten tribes going to the north, becoming Israel or Ephraim or Jacob, as they were called, those three names, and the two tribes, Levi and Judah, and then Benjamin came to the south. 
Well, the north was conquered in 722 by Assyria. And not long after that, as I mentioned before, Babylon came against Judah. And that brings us to this third name, which is Babylon. Babylon. Babylon is more of an event than it is really a name. Babylon is more of a type, really, than it is a nation. Now, it was a nation, and it was, it was populated by people, and they actually did the things that we read of in the Bible. But throughout the Bible, and most especially in the final book of the Bible, in Revelation, what is Babylon? They are the model. They are the paradigm. They are the example of man's pride and arrogance and rebellion against God. You can almost look at Psalm 2 when God's laughing at them and holding them in derision. The, the kings of the earth are trying to gather together and rebel against God, and God just scorns them. You could almost every time in that psalm put in Babylon. Babylon, the kings of the earth. Babylon, the paradigm they follow. Babylon, the schematic that leads to such arrogance against God. But why is this so important in this genealogy? How does this go along with this theme that I have this afternoon of God keeping His Word? Because many of the names in verses 12 to 15 are unknown outside of this very genealogy. And why that's important is because there's still this monument to God's faithfulness. The fact that we don't know who they are doesn't really matter. What matters is a faithful bunch of Jews in Babylon, we might call them the remnant, the faithful believing remnant, kept track of David's ancestors. Excuse me, David's descendants. Because they believed that David's descendants would continue. So they kept track of the line, even there in Babylon, where they had no throne, they had no country, they had no army. They didn't have a slingshot to shoot into their enemies. They had nothing but this. Faith enough, sureness enough in the promises and the word of God to keep track of David's descendants. Your throne shall be established forever, God told him, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, he said that to David. And here is that word come true. This is Matthew's point, that God is faithful and true to his word. That the birth of Christ is more than just that baby in the manger and the no room at the end story and all the Christmas movies that we see this time of year. It's so much more than that. This time of year when we think of the birth of Jesus Christ, is a time of year where our thoughts have to turn to this God who is true and faithful. It's impossible for him to lie. That everything he has said, all the promises he has made, yes and amen, in Christ Jesus our Lord, born here in the manger. And so important is the history that led to him that the whole birth narrative has to come later. Do you know this, Lord? Do you know this Jesus Christ? Do you trust in his promises? After they were brought to Babylon, their exile was not the end of God's promises, you see. These are those who kept track of it. How easy it would have been for them to just give up and wash their hands of the whole thing, saying we've had enough of being God's people, we're in this foreign land, we don't like it here. But no. You know, no matter what trials we go through, no matter the difficulties we are facing, I think we can look at this genealogy. When your health fails, when you don't know if your job's going to be there the next Monday, when relationships are getting shaky, and you look to God's Word and you find in Him the sureness that here are His promises and here is what He has given you in Christ Jesus. My God shall supply all your needs 
in Christ Jesus to the glory of God. Those sorts of promises. How do we turn them from just these seeming platitudes? At least the world would say they're like platitudes. You're just saying that to feel good. No. No, because God is true to his word. And this history that's embedded in this genealogy can assure us of that. It can give us that hope. It can restore our trust, our faith. We can remember, what has God done for me? How did God save me? Remember that moment when you confessed Christ? For many of us, it led up to that slowly. So we can't really say, at this moment, I believed in Christ. But there comes a moment where you can't but testify that God has saved you by giving you faith to believe in Him. We can all have that kind of a genealogy, if you will. That we all have a history that can lead us back and bring us forward again as we look at it. Say, God has been faithful to me. God has been true to His Word. I can look back at my own life, and I'm not even going to bother to give examples right now, but I can go back decades before I came to know Jesus Christ. And I can tell you that looking back, I know in a way very similar to this genealogy that God was with me every step. And He kept His Word and brought me to Christ. Can we not all in this place say the same if we stop and think about it? And when we get shaky, when so many things are happening and the world out there seems so lost, and it is, and there's war and there's famine and there's disease and there's troubles out there and people are suffering and the innocents are being killed and all these things are happening and how do we hang on to our faith? How do we remember that God is faithful and true? I would suggest read this genealogy. And perhaps if you have the time, go back to each one of these and briefly read the histories behind these names. And by the time you get to verse 17, which is where I ended, you'll know that God is faithful and always true to His Word. What is the purpose of this genealogy? Where does it lead us? We come to the purpose of God in the birth of His Son. The birth of His Son, the manner of it, and all those wonderful details behind it come later. For Matthew, this was more important. But he doesn't forget it. It's right here where he says, from whom came Jesus, who is called the Christ. The Christ. Jesus. Emmanuel, God with us. You shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from his sins. Jesus, the Greek for Joshua, or the Hebrew Yeshua, which means God is salvation, or God saves Has God saved you? You're a testament to His faithfulness. As you go through this life, know that God is true and always true and can only be true to His Word. And this genealogy proves that every time. Well, if I were writing a novel, I don't think I'd start it with Abraham was the father of David. Maybe because I don't have enough imagination. I'm just not a good writer. But this is not the opening of a novel. It's the opening of the first book of the New Testament. There's another book with another long list of names, though we don't have a single one of those names. We only know that the book exists and it has names written on it. It isn't a genealogy. It's called the book of life. Revelation chapter 3, verse 5 says, He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments, and I will not blot out, blot out his name from the book of life but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. All those names listed in the book of life will be named by Jesus Christ. It's like one at a time, like the high priest wearing the 
the, the stones on his breastplate with the names of the tribes of Judah as he goes into the holy place, the holiest of holy. And there's Jesus Christ wearing us, as it were, as he goes and confesses you before God the Father. This is salvation. This is what it means to have been saved from our sins by Jesus who will save his people from the sins. What a blessed time it will be to see him and to think of him going into that holiest place with your name written on it. And as it says in Revelation, he'll give you that name, write it on a stone, give it to you, and only you and he know it. This idea of being in his book. If your faith is in Jesus Christ, then your name is recorded in this book of life. If you've confessed your faith in Jesus Christ, you've confessed a, faith, you've confessed a faithful God who will never let you down. The hard times come. There's much hard times embedded in the history behind this genealogy. The rough times are there. Many of you know what we're going through in my family right now with myself and my wife. And yet, this genealogy props us up and holds us up and gives us that solid wall, that rock upon, that rock upon which our faith is founded, which is Jesus Christ, who is the sureness of God's Word. God's Word is good. God's Word is proven. God has kept His Word. He will keep his word. I trust that that's the same for you. Amen.